Today we are beginning into a new series, a new focus uh, here for the fall, and that is going in line with our theme for the year. Our theme spiritually is gospel renewal. And we spent a few weeks looking at that subject matter itself spiritually for ourselves and what that means. And now we're going to spend some time renewing what we understand to be true about our church. It's important that we have a, a, under, an understanding of what our core commitments are. Just as McKay asked for Creekstone, we also need that same prayer answered for ourselves. Many of you weren't here Matter of fact, most of you weren't here when we started Christ Community, and many of you even weren't here four, five, six years ago. And so we have now an opportunity, I believe, vitally important that we would understand what are our core values as a church, and what do those mean for our church? What do those mean for our own lives? What and how are we going to be part of seeing those core values become a reality, more than just merely words on a page? things that we say, well, we'd like to see that happen. We, we believe this is important, but really how can they take place and how God has called us to seeing those core values actually be fulfilled. Um, our vision as a church is very clear and focused. Our vision, as you see there on the, uh, in the bulletin, also on the front of our worship bulletin, <clears throat> is to see the gospel change hearts, lives, and community by multiplying disciples in northwest Atlanta and beyond. So that's our vision, but what's important to us is how we're going to accomplish that vision, the important values we have as a church. You see, as we seek to see this particular vision fulfilled, what's most important to us? And what is most important is what we call our core values. And these are listed there. Each and every week you'll see them in your bulletin. And these are ministry values that we hold very much important in the life and the ministry of Christ community. You see the seven values listed that we have Christ-centered worship. We have a gospel-centered culture in everything we do. That we have an authentic community truly engaging one another. We have ministry that is outwardly faced, not just focusing on our own selves. That we have a biblically-based teaching in all that we present in God's truth. We have a ministry that is filled with God's Spirit, that it is Spirit-filled and not just uh, in our own strength, and also that it is decentralized. And we'll talk more about these different values as we go along in the weeks to come, what these values mean, what they look like, how they are to be fleshed out in the life of Christ's community. And so <clears throat> today, as we focus on Christ-centered worship, our text, as you have there in your bulletin, if you don't, you can also turn there in, the, in your Bibles, if you have them, to Romans chapter 11, verse 30, through chapter 12, verse 1. Romans chapter 11, through 12, verse 1. Listen as I read God's Word. And just as you who were at one time disobedient to, have to, to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his past beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? 
Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word challenges our hearts to understand what worship really means for us, not just in an hour time slot on Sunday, but in every area of our life as we seek to worship and honor you. Help us to understand this very hour that all that we seek all that we desire should be focused on you alone, should seek to make you preeminent in all things, to put you first in all that we seek to think, say, or do in our own lives. Lord, that is certainly an impossibility in our own strength. But as we surrender ourselves, as we give ourselves in faith to you that you would do by the power of your holy spirit that very work in our hearts and then it would work itself out in our very lives what we put our hands to do what we put our mouths to speak father give us a greater and deeper understanding of worship this very morning in jesus name amen well maybe some of you have uh or are a kind of crime show buff. You love watching those TV crime shows. My father loves those kind of shows. He will watch all, you know, he just loves watching those kind of uh, particular TV shows, whatever they may be, CSI or any of those type of shows. But, you know, it's very interesting. Um, those shows do have some things that are probably aspects of the judicial system or legal system that we never thought about. But in the past 20, 30 years, the judicial system, the legal system in our country has truly been impacted by an aspect of science. Aspect of science that has, in some cases, completely turned over convictions that have happened in the past. We're talking about the use of DNA. And it's an amazing tool that they have available to them today that, when I was a kid, was not available as it is today. And it's being used in all types of applications in the court systems and in our judicial branch um, of our country. DNA is used in so many different applications to understand what truly happened in a particular crime or in a particular situation. You know, <clears throat> it's very much something that is a valuable tool in the hands of whether it be a prosecutor or whether it be a defendant, whatever the situation might call for. DNA, why is it so important? Well, you see what DNA does, as we know, when it comes to a scientific understanding, uh, in simplest forms, DNA is the essence of a person, scientifically, biologically. It is the essence, the core of what, who God has made you or me to be. All of us have a particular DNA, as it were, fingerprint, 
I mean, our fingerprints themselves literally are unique, but that which God has made us to be, even biologically, He has, which is an amazing thought. You think about every human being that God's ever created, past, present, or future, has a unique DNA fingerprint. And will always be the case as far as we know. God's creative power, His unbelievable creative power, can and does that for us. So, thinking about DNA being the essence and core, that is what we're looking at for the next few weeks. The core values, the, in a sense, spiritual DNA of Christ's community church, the things that we truly hope and believe are the essence to who we are as a church family. Um, Hence, you have on the cover of your bulletin, in case you were looked at that picture and go, what is that? That's a DNA fingerprint. That's a DNA fingerprint, scientifically, if you looked at it uh, visually, that's what that would be. And so, we're considering these core values in that way. The DNA fingerprints of Christ Community Church are our core values. And so, I want us to truly spend some time understanding, affirming, agreeing, seeking to see these values lived out and how you might be part of seeing those values be fulfilled in the ministry and the life of our church. So today we look at Christ-centered worship as the first, so to speak, core value. First, our understanding of what Christ-centered worship is. As we look at what Paul has written here uh, verses Uh, In verse 1 of chapter 12, our focus a lot will be in that verse, with the context being from chapter 11, verse 30, preparing us for what he says in the first verse of chapter 12. He speaks about, basically, the head and the body. In verse 1, he says, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Again, all these words are plural. He's speaking to the church collectively to the body of Christ that he's writing to. Specifically, not an individual, not one person, but I urge you brothers. It's a plural address. And as he says these things, first of all, we have to understand worship, even as Paul would speak to what worship is, is first of all, all of life. And I think even as he says there in chapter 12, verse 1, worship is much bigger than just Sunday worship, just gathering for one time in one place once a week or so. It's all of life. So whatever we are involved in in our life, everything is worship. It's an act of worship. Um, At work, though you may not think of what you're going to do tomorrow morning when you get in the car and commute to work and you start to work tomorrow, you may not be thinking, I can't wait tomorrow to go to worship. You may not be thinking that way, but it is worship. It's an act whereby you're honoring the Lord with your work. You're seeking to work in a way that would honor Him, would lift up who He is, and others would see an image of your Heavenly Father through how you work. That's worshiping God through our work, or in our neighborhood, or in our homes, or however we, whatever we're doing, all of life is an act of worship before God. So if you think about it, there's nothing that you would do that would not be an act of worship before God. How we go about those things is very challenging to consider if everything is an act of worship as it truly is. Secondly, though, 
Christ-centered worship is certainly not less than our own personal worship with the Lord as we spend time in a more focused way. We said all of life is worship, but yet we need to take time out of our busy schedule and our days and to spend time focusing our minds and our hearts in our relationship with Christ. And worship is certainly not less than that. We need to be spending that time in order to experience the fullness of what's happening here every Sunday when you come and gather with brothers and sisters to worship God together. Certainly, the fullness of what this can be for you will not be realized if you have not spent time with your Lord and Savior on your own, developing and cultivating that relationship so that when you come to worship that very one that you've given your heart to throughout the week, with others who have given their heart to him throughout the week, the fullness of that experience will just multiply when we gather together. But if each of us on our own are spending little or no time with him in our relationship with him, then to just expect the vibrancy and fullness of that relationship to just become catastrophically explosive spiritually on Sunday morning is probably not going to happen as likely. Though it's not about what we do, certainly developing that intimate relationship with God on a regular basis helps and develops us together worshiping and cultivating our corporate worship. We need private worship as it seeks to be a part of even our corporate worship. Think of your intimate relationships you have, the most intimate relationships you have, friendships or spouse or Whatever relationship, human relationships you have, they, if they're really truly intimate, what do they require? They require time. They require investment. They require you to give yourself to that person. And therefore, if we are to seek to develop an intimate relationship with Christ, we must give ourselves to Him. We must invest ourselves into that relationship with Him. As we do so then our time spent with him will certainly be developed in our time spent with brothers and sisters who also invest in their relationship with Christ. You know, he speaks here, as we said, to brothers. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. All these are plural, speaking to to the church together as they are one. Paul urges the collective body of believers there in the book of Romans as he speaks to the believers in Rome to offer themselves to Christ and to bring themselves together even as a sacrifice before God in worship. There's just not a substitute, if you think about it, there just is no substitute for brothers and sisters gathering together, worshiping Christ. There's no replacement for it. Can you think of one? Can you think of something that would replace and grant you spiritually that which you only receive or you are a recipient of when you gather with brothers and sisters to worship God? I can't think of anything that replaces that. And so since there's no copycat, there's no replacement for it, I sometimes wonder why it seems not so much of a priority in our lives. Help me here. I'm a little bit dumbfounded sometimes when I don't see the vitality and priority 
of gathering with brothers and sisters for worship. Each and every opportunity that is given to us. It seems like if it fits in my schedule, I'll, I'll do it. Or if I don't have something else better to do, then I'll, I'll make church today. Or, you know, I got other things that are, that are really on my schedule. Like, and it just seems like it's not the preeminent thing that we need to be praying for, looking forward to, desiring for, seeking to be part of making that experience each and every Sunday, each and every Lord's Day, such a vital part of our own lives. Paul urges us to come and bring ourselves as a sacrifice of worship together. There's just no substitute for gathering together to worship the living, living Christ. Acts chapter 2, you're familiar with that as, a new ch- as the church is being established there in the book of Acts. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. Every day they continued to meet together for fellowship, for prayer, for worship, for teaching, for that which spiritually just built them up. Every day they would gather in the temple courts, Scripture tells us. And we so much at times seem to struggle for one hour a week. And yet daily, probably more, for more than just one hour, they would gather and continue to worship as God's people. Worship cannot exist without both the head and the body. We are the body, but there also is the head to the body of Christ. There is no isolation There is not isolation from the head, from the body. There's no isolated member of the body. If you are a person who knows the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a member of the body of Christ. You're part of the body, and you are not called to grow. You cannot grow as God has intended for you to grow in isolation. Some of you here, I'm sure, I I know a few stories, but I don't know every person's story here. But I would suspect that some of you here in the size group that's here at this hour have had experiences in a church that haven't gone well. They just haven't. The church really has not been a good place for where your memory resides. And yet, God says, this is where I call you to worship me with brothers and sisters. This is where you have an opportunity in like no other way you can to see my grace bestowed upon you, to receive what other brothers and sisters can give you, what you are called and can give them, what you are called to. We're called to be part of his bride, of his body. God has designed the body in such a way that each member is interdependent upon one another. We're dependent upon Christ fully, but he's designed it in a way to where there is an interdependence, and it's a positive thing. As Christ is in me, Christ is in you, and we work together, interdependence, so that working together in unison, Christ is adored. He's glorified, and there's something about that. It's not like a corporate team working on a marketing plan and really doing well together to see that just 
go really well. That's one aspect, maybe. That's not what we're talking about. It's something much greater, much deeper. It's a spiritual transaction that occurs between brothers and sisters that truly can't be just explained A, B, C, D. It's the living body of Christ. See, this church, every church, is an organization. There's aspects to it, but it's an organism. No matter how much you may or may not like Apple, the company, it's not an organism. It is an organization. It is a company, but it's not an organism. It doesn't have a living, breathing spirit that indwells it. The church is the only organization that is also a living, spiritual organism. There is nothing in the entire created existence of the universe that is like it. Nothing. We've been given the body. 1 Corinthians 12 says, But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. God's also placed Christ, we said, as the head of the body so we can follow him, submitting our wills and following who he is as the head of the body. Colossians 1, he that is Christ is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn among, from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. In everything, Christ would be preeminent. He would have supremacy in everything. All of life is worship. Christ-centered worship must place Christ as preeminent above all else. So what's the implication? Application. Pretty, pretty, pretty obvious, I would say. We must together prioritize worship. Corporate worship private worship, all of life worship, but particularly gathering at God's people. He calls us together. We must prioritize being together as God's people. Here's a question to ask yourself. How much does it take for you to not be with God's people on the Lord's day? Does it take a whole lot to keep you from being with God's people here? Or does it not take much just to distract you? from being with the people of God, worshiping the risen, the living head of the church, Christ. What does it take? We must work together to encourage each other in prioritizing worship together. Worship is not only the head and the body, but understanding it's Christ-centered. You can go to a lot of worship services, I'm sure you maybe have, especially if you're new. Maybe you've been visiting around other churches. I don't know. But a lot of worship services do not lift Christ up as preeminent. Christ is not the center focus point, who He is, Father, Son, and Spirit. His work on our behalf on the cross, His obedience, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, all that Christ is as the second person of the Trinity, being centered upon who He is what he's done, what the gospel tells us about that. Christ-centered is so important when we think of worship. Again, verse 1, chapter 12, 
I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. How is Christ the center of what Paul is saying in verse 1? Because it's not real clear, it's not explicit, but here is how we understand Christ to be the center in what Paul says. He says, in view of God's mercy. Okay? How is that Christ-centered? Well, we worship in light of, in view of God's mercy. You see, Paul, the apostle, his readers of this epistle would have understood worship through one primary lens. Yesterday, I was uh, taking pictures of uh, one girl who had a, a, a horse show and one girl who had a soccer game. And I, was, I had a, a lens I, I, I got about a year or so ago, and it kind of brings everything in from a distance and brings it up close. And I had that lens out there, and I was the gloating dad taking pictures on the sidelines of everything and all that. But so fun to look at those pictures. Right through that single lens, it was just focused on what I could see right there. The lens through which the readers of Paul's words would have seen and thought about what he's saying that lens, one primary lens as they understood what worship was, would be the mercy of God displayed through the atonement. That would have been a primary lens of Apostle Paul's readers in Rome. The mercy of God, in view of God's mercy, through the atonement. Capital A, atonement. You see, sacrifice for sin was still a very huge reference point for the early church and the believers Jews especially, in their background historically, they had that lens, and it was first and foremost an understanding on their mind. How else could a sinful creature come before a holy God and offer him worship of any sort unless that sinful creature had a means by which their sins were atoned for? You see how vitally center stage that was for them? When Paul says, in view of God's mercy, that was pregnant with all of that and understanding and background in their mind. They understood what he meant when he said that. Payment for sin, the sacrificial lamb, the altar of the most holy place, was critical to worship, any kind of worship. But worship of the holy God, that was critical, mission critical. In fact, they didn't understand worship outside of having God's mercy in the atoning sacrifice. They didn't even think of it. They couldn't think of it. It wasn't in their categories mentally. So, the lamb, the sacrificial offering, they understood that. We understand that even today. One day when Christ will return, again, that will be the first and foremost display of our understanding of how we might be eternally, continually in God's presence in worship. Revelation chapter 5 says, the uh, Apostle John writes these words, Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, uh, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders, and they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. See, that's it. 
God, you purchased men. You purchased me through the slain, sacrificial lamb. Those in Rome understood what Paul was saying. Worship must be God's mercy in the atonement, and that is Christ. See, that is, that is our understanding of the atonement. Christ was the final atoning sacrifice. There is no need for any more atoning sacrifices. All that we're giving before Christ are now done. There is no more sacrifice for sin. Christ did it all. Worship must be Christocentric. What we do every Sunday is, here's a big word you can impress someone with, is Christocentric worship. Christ is the center. He's a center stage. Each and every time we gather as his brothers and sisters, we are secondary when it comes to worship. When you come to gather for worship, what we do here, what you, who you are, sorry, you're secondary. Christ is primary. He is to be lifted up. Everyone else, everything else is less than. It must be. He is ultimate. Though we're created in His image, He is God and Savior. He is the one that is preeminent. The goal of all worship is not about what, who we are. You see, when we come to worship, it's not about what we like or dislike. It's not about what we bring to the table. It's not about what those up front bring to the table for those who are out in the congregation. It's not about any of that. Truly, it's not. It's about Christ. It's about Him being center stage and us coming to worship Him, for Him to be revealed more deeply, more greatly to us. The goal of worship is not about what we like or dislike. Instead, worship is about our self-abandonment unto Christ Himself. That's what we come here to do. When you spend time with Him alone, you abandon yourself to Him. That's what He calls us to do, to worship Him personally, privately. When you come with God's people, it's no different. You come to abandon yourself, to put everything else as secondary, and He is primary. He must be primary. Worship cannot be limited to a style or a preference, much of our worship experience today points to a more self-centered approach to worship, though. And we struggle with that. All of us do. Many believers have come to a place where worship is mainly about having their own desires met, first and foremost. And yet, as I see the counsel and read the counsel of Scripture, I don't see that idea in Scripture at all about what worship truly is. In fact, we as God's people are called to surrender what we want. We're called to surrender our desires and to seek His desires, to desire what He desires, first and foremost, even when it comes to His bride, His church. If I were to ask you today this question, who are the performers in worship on September 30th at Christ Community Church. Who are the performers today in worship? You might say, well, it was Josh on the guitar. It was the worship team vocalist that sang up here. 
It might have been the drummer or the keyboard player, the musicians. They were their performers. Oh, I, I'd probably include Mike. I mean, he gave the sermon, and, um, and sometimes we have an elder, and they lead us in prayer. They're, in a sense, kind of performing as we're the congregation, and they're up front. Because usually in a performance, the ones who are up front are the performers, Correct. Yes, that's usually what happens when you go to a play. You go to something uh, down at, uh, in downtown Atlanta. The ones on stage are the performers. The ones out sitting, watching, are those who are being performed for. So it kind of makes sense if you think about it, asking the question, who are the performers? You would say those type of answers. If I were to ask you, well, who's the audience here today? You would probably say, well, everyone's sitting around me including myself. We're the audience today. And at first, I would probably say, that makes sense. I wouldn't probably disagree. But as I understand what worship is, then both those answers would be incorrect when it comes to worship. The performers in worship, every time we gather as God's people, are every one of us. Not just those on stage, five, six, seven people, those who do things up front. It is you and me, all of us. There's a reason that I don't have a big, huge chair with velvet inside of it or sitting up here facing you all like some churches do. I grew up with a church like that. Now, I'm not knocking that kind of church. The church I grew up in had that. And the pastor would sit up there each and every Sunday. Nothing wrong with that, but there is a, there's a reason why we have chosen not to have that kind of situations because I sit down here until I come up and use my gifts because I am also one like you who is a performer not for you but I am performing for God in worship so I am like you you are like me in a sense we all come before God as we are performing and that word may not be a good word or term but in a sense he is the object of our worship so therefore who's the audience it's not you, it's not me. The audience is God himself. God is the only audience, Father, Son, and Spirit. The Trinity is the audience of worship every time we gather. And so, that should be our focus. We should seek to please the audience with our worship, from our heart and how it's expressed. However it is expressed, it is for the audience. And who is the audience? Father, Son, and Spirit. Christ being lifted up preeminent. That is how we come to understand worship. So God is the audience. Now we understand that. Let's understand, and I'm running out of time already, our motivations. What are our motivations for Christ-centered worship? Well, first of all, it's the majesty of God. The majesty of God. One of the greatest motivations that draws us to worship Christ is His beauty and His majesty. All He has done, all that He does his amazing creativity. Verses 33 through 36, you see there. Paul's writing, and then all of a sudden, in mid-thought, he just breaks out in doxology right here. He kind of like, what's he doing there? He's talking about being dis disobedient once we're disobedient as God, God has bound all men over to disobedience so he can have mercy on us all. And then all of a sudden, he just goes, oh, the depths and the riches and the mercies of God and his judgment. It's like, what's he doing? He just can't help himself. He had to break out in doxology. 
That's what he's doing right here. He's worshiping. He just, his heart was so filled with God's beauty and God's majesty, he could not help himself, even in writing to the Rome, church in Rome. And so he does that. He breaks out in considering the majesty and beauty of God. Psalm 8, verse 3 says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Have you ever heard of the pistol star? Maybe not. It was found uh, in astronomy in the mid-90s. The pistol star. That's the pistol star. Oh, yeah, now I recognize it, right? No, you probably have never seen that. That's the pistol star in some sense. If you had a real high-powered telescope, you could probably see. It's in the middle of the Milky Way, the pistol star. It's so large that it would, listen, this is amazing. That star is so large, it would fill the entire solar system within this concentric concentric circle all the way in the orbit from the Earth to the sun. We're 93 million miles from the sun. We are. Go all the way around. That space could be filled by the pistol star. That's how big it is. It's it's, It's so Huge and so powerful, it would glow with the energy of 10 million suns. 10 million suns. That's how powerful it glows. It's the brightest star ever observed in our galaxy to to date. Are there others? Probably so. But this is amazing to think God created that, the pistol star. His majesty, his beauty, it's beyond our minds. John Stott says this, this is worship. It is to revel in the unique wonder of who God is and has revealed himself to be. In true worship, we turn the searchlight of our mind and heart upon God, and we temporarily forget about our troublesome and usually intrusive selves. We marvel at the beauties and intricacies of God's creation. We are taken up with God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, because we are normally so turned in on ourselves, we will not find this easy. But we have to persevere, since nothing is more right or more important. You see, you have to persevere to worship God. To make Christ center, it just doesn't come naturally. Does it come naturally the other 167 hours of the week when you're not here at worship? No. So what makes you think it will come, just walk through the doors, you're caught up into a vortex where all of a sudden worship is just easy. You've got to work at it. Every Sunday, you've got to fight to worship together. We have to work at worship. It will not come easy. It will not come natural. Yet, as Stott says, nothing is more right or more important. Paul revels in the wonder of God's person. But what he is recalling before he explodes in doxology, look at what he's recalling before in verses 30 through 32, talking about as we were once disobedient and that God's mercy came to us. And then he comes then on the bookend in verse 1 of chapter 12, and he says, Therefore, in view of God's mercy again, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. See, a large portion of Paul's audience when he wrote the letter to the church in Rome, did consist of Jews, like we said, and their reference point, and their religious understanding of what sacrificial atonement was, slitting an animal's throat, placing it upon the altar, 
that was a sacrifice and their understanding for atoning for their sin as it was done on their behalf and placing in the altar? What is the sole reason that an altar even exists? Why do they have altars in Israel's day? Altars existed because worship needed to exist. God needed to be worshipped, and therefore an altar was necessary for that to take place according to what God had prescribed. But you know, here's the, here's the difference with, with what Paul is saying. He says, we're living sacrifices. We're living sacrifices. That's a foreign concept to a person who understands slitting an animal's throat, the blood spilling out, and it being dead carcass upon an altar of atonement. That doesn't compute. You see, because the sacrifice us, we're still living, we have an option to stay on the altar or get off. I can stay on the altar or I can get off. If you're living, you have a choice still. You can move. If you don't want to stay on the altar of worship, you don't have to. Get off. It's your choice. You can get off or you can stay on. It's your prerogative in worship. So what kind of God would allow a willful yet sinful creature that he's created to inconsistently worship him in this way, which we do, all of us, and to intermittently lay on the altar themselves? What kind of a God would create that scenario? Because this is what it is right now. The scenario is we either are on or off the altar of worship. Every day, every moment, you are choosing your heart is choosing. Well, here's the kind of God that would do that. It's the kind of God that consists in very two important realities. First, he doesn't need your sacrifice. And if that offends you, God tells us, he doesn't need you as a sacrifice for sin. In fact, your sacrifice is already tainted. You can't offer your sacrifice for your sins. Someone else can't offer their sacrifice for your sins. Parents can't offer their sacrifice for their children's sins, although parents try to atone for their children's faults and failures. Spouses can't offer sacrifices for their spouses. We cannot do that which only Christ can do. So first and foremost, God doesn't need our sacrifice because, see, He's already finished that work. He's already provided the sacrifice. There is no more need for it. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He's already done that. It's done. There is no more need for sacrifice. But here's the second most important thought. God is a type of God that willingly and relentlessly has chosen to pursue you and me, even while we are stepping off or even running from our own altar of worship. Let me say that again. God is the kind of God that has chosen to willingly, benevolently, relentlessly pursue you even when you're stepping off the altar and going your own way. He will not let you go. No matter how hard you run, 
where you try to go to, how far you have been away from him, how long it's been in your life. It could have been 40 years since you really have felt close to him or ever even spoken of his name. And yet, he has never given up. You may be here today and feel like, God gave up on me a long time ago. Guess what? His word says, he's never given up on you. Not once. I don't care what you've done in your life, how bad it's been for you, with you, upon you. It doesn't matter. God says, I am pursuing you with an everlasting love, and I will not let you go until you are mine. Because you're my beloved. Because I am absolutely enthralled with you as my beloved. And I want you to be mine. And what God wants... God gets every single time. There's not a moment where God will not get what he desires because his desires are pure. His desires are perfect. His desires are absolutely holy. So even when you're stepping off that altar, he's pursuing you. Richard Foster said, Worship is a human response to the divine initiative. And that's what it is. God is a divine initiator. He takes the initiative. We don't. You see, that's what makes this possible. Because you're not initiating anything with him, he's initiating it with you. We're just responding. And he gives us even the response. He is the divine initiator. God pursues you and me. Despite our mistakes, our failures, our flaws, our addictions, our obsessions, our weaknesses, our rebellion... Our wickedness. He pursues us. Why do we come here Sunday after Sunday after Sunday? It's not because we are incredibly spiritual and we have it all together and we are all passionately pursuing God. You may think that's true about you, but I have news. It's not. You're here because God has pursued you. And every Sunday, he gets you to want, to want him. And he brings you to desire him. Every moment of your life, every breath you have, he gives you that. And he calls you to himself. And so when you come here on Sunday, he brought you here. He brought you here. He wants you to be with him. God passionately and relentlessly pursues us and calls us to worship him. We would not have even the slightest desire to worship Christ unless he chased us and captured us. I wouldn't. I promise you, I would want nothing to do with Christ on my own. Because I try all the time to do things that don't honor him and don't really give him any honor in my life. I do that all the time. As a child of his, I struggle with that. So God must pursue me. God's pursuit of you and me points us every time to his mercy, in view of God's mercy and his kindness. And that is what will bring your heart to worship him. That's what will make your heart want to worship him as preeminent and place Christ as center.